everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. First up, a thanks to this month's supporting partners who make the podcast possible, and that's Shimano and We Are One Composites. Shimano's brand new gravity-focused flat pedal shoe, the GR9, is out now, and it features their very own in-house developed Ultred sole. They've designed the sole to be grippy, but not at the expense of durability. I've been using the shoes for the last month or so, and I've found that they work well for me. In some other shoes, I felt too locked into the pedals and unable to make any micro adjustments to my foot position as I'm riding. And I've found that if I'm too locked in like that, then it aggravates an old injury in my knee. For me, the GR9 has enough grip that even on rocky trails, I've not had a problem with my foot slipping on the pedal, but I've also not felt like I can't move my foot if I need to. The shoe itself is really comfortable and has a clever little booty around the ankle to stop bits of the trail ending up in your shoes. It's hard to comment on durability over this shorter period of time, but there is very limited pin marking on the soles and the general build quality of the shoes feels really good. If you like the sound of them, you can check them out at your local Shimano dealer or over at mtb.shimano.com. In my opinion, We Are One are doing an incredible job. I've been riding their wheels for nearly four years and in that time I've had no issues. They're still as tight and true as the day they arrived and I cannot say that about any of the metal rims that I've ever owned. The ride quality is bang on, hitting a sweet spot between being direct and going where you point them, but not being so stiff that they're deflected by every little obstacle on the trail. I'm running a mullet setup with a slightly lighter Faction 29er up front and the tougher Union 275 at the back and I'm super happy with that combo. The quality of engineering and the attention to detail that We Are One put into all their products is easy to see if you ever peel the rim tape off, as you'll see that the finish is as good in the areas you don't see as the ones that you do. Again, not something that can be said for a lot of carbon rim manufacturers. We Are One don't like to stand still and they now also make handlebars and they last year released their very own bike, The Arrival. I've not had a chance to ride them, but from what I know about We Are One and from the reviews that I've read, they've smashed it out of the park there too. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off all rim-only products from We Are One during the month of March. All you need to do is to use the code WEARRIMS2022. That's WEARRIMS, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2022 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. We're rapidly approaching the end of the month, so now is the time to get that purchase done. While you're here, don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast so that you never miss an episode. There's buttons to help you get that done over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe or in the app that you're using. Merch is available if you want to support the show. That's over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. If you want a copy of the first issue of our print project with Miss Spence Summers, Downtime EP, then you can do that at downtimepodcast.com forward slash EP. And all the links you need for all of this stuff are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. You can also get in touch and give me a follow on Instagram and Facebook by finding at Downtime Podcast. All right, this week we're talking about sustainability. It's a word that we hear often these days and for good reason, but how is mountain biking doing in terms of sustainability? The release of the first sustainability report by Trek last year really started to shine a light on the scale of the challenge that we face. So I thought it'd be a good idea to sit down with an expert and find out more. Mike Bascom is a mountain biker and also a consultant who specialises in sustainability. We chat about what sustainability means and the benefits that it can bring to the sport, the brand and the individuals involved, as well as to the planet in general. We look at how the mountain bike industry is doing and focus on areas where both brands and us as individuals could look to make the biggest improvements. While this may be an uncomfortable topic in many ways, I think it's super important that we start to tackle it as this is something that isn't going to go away and we do need to start making improvements and moving in a positive direction for all of us together as a whole sport. All right, without further ado, here's Mike Bascom. <laughs> 
Mike Bascom, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Very good, thanks, Chris. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, so we're going to try and chat a bit about um, sustainability within the mountain bike world. Before we do that, just give us a little bit of background on yourself and kind of your background both in riding and within the sustainability side of things. No, sure, thanks, Chris. So I I work for a small uh, firm that focuses on sustainability consulting and we sort of we just focus on that we don't do that as part of a wider service or anything but it's a small pretty dedicated team like we're all into it for the right reasons and it's been something that's been part of my life as, far, as long as I can remember really one way or another I was brought up in Hong Kong uh, so everyone thinks I was uh, born on like the 63rd floor of a skyscraper. Uh, but no, I actually lived up in the north by the border by China and essentially right next to a nature reserve. And my dad was really into collecting butterflies and just nature was always there. Nice. And like conservatism, conservatism and environmentalism especially were a big part of my life and just appreciation of nature. It's always It's always sort of been around. And I think that's kind of where the mountain biking side of things also overlays with that really nicely. Like that appreciation of using natural resources, you know, it's like our trails are just lines through woods most of the time or rocks or whatever it is. And you are on nature. And I think it's one of those sort of fundamental differences between mountain biking and road riding you know roads you're sort of beholden to this man-made system and obviously trails these days are man-made but it's a it's a less natural thing when you just do it on tarmac um, so riding wise i've kind of done a lot of a lot of everything really like i was a very very serious lycra clad rafa worshipping guy for a few years um i've i've definitely now left that behind me and you know embracing the uh the the, the gravity based side of things uh-huh. wholeheartedly like i did my first enduro this weekend actually um, nice yeah it was really really good i absolutely suck like, i i was <laughs> gonna start somewhere exactly yeah i wasn't last and, okay. you know, and i got a valid time so that that was all i wanted to do so sweet where was that uh, it was the Land of Nod. It was the Pedal Hounds. Oh, yeah, uh, okay. Series, yeah. Um, yeah, Brendan Fairclough won it. So, like, you know, proper riders yeah. going there. Um, but, yeah, no, it was, it was excellent. And just the strategic side of it was really fun, to be honest. You know, it's like, all right, you've got to do X amount of runs over X amount of time. The trails are, like, disintegrating because they're all getting, you know, pounded every minute. What's the weather doing? What's your energy levels doing? Can you have to, oh, it's, Yeah, it was awesome. Absolutely Wicked. loved it. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I'm glad you enjoyed it. No, I couldn't recommend it highly enough, to be honest. I mean, I'd love to, I did it on my own just because I signed up one day and just managed to get the weekend off from the kids. But I'd love to go back and do it with a bunch of mates. I mean, it'd be hilarious. Yeah, definitely. Nice one. Cool. Well, let's um, let's start out and just maybe try and define the term sustainability a bit because it kind of gets banded around a lot and it's a it's a buzzword, I guess, at, at the moment, certainly. But what what does it mean to you, at least? No, it's, it's a it's a great point. I mean, sustainability is one of those sort of funny, funny phrases almost. You know, it can mean different things to different people. One of the best sort of standalone definitions I've come across is the fact that like it's the balance between the environment, equity, and economy. Uh-huh. So, what I like about that is it's a reflection of the complexity within it more than anything else. Like some people refer to ESG, like a lot of my clients think about it that way. So that's the environmental social governance sort okay. of criteria. So that, but that's more of like a, 
an investor-led viewpoint. So it's like, right, if you're looking to evaluate a company on how well they're doing in this space, you've got this like list of criteria under each of those headings. And, you know, that's one thing. But from a more personal perspective, it's more just about how do you operate a business in a way that doesn't mess up the planet, Mm -hmm. that looks after its stakeholders, i.e. its staff and its clients and the people who matter to it. It's sort of based on stakeholder capitalism and this idea that actually being a responsible company is not only just a moral thing, but it's actually good business. Like we're seeing the bit, you know, the case for sustainability is now an easy one to make in in my world. Like it's not, you don't have to sell the idea anymore. Like before everyone's like, okay, well, but yeah, this is really nice, but how is it actually like feed into a working like business model? And now it's, it's all there. Like, you know, you can prove that the, the, the metrics are all there to show development and progress and value. And it's, it's also about resilience. I mean, this is a topic I'm sure we'll come back to during our talk today, but like the bike industry is a great example of how supply chains can get whacked. And, you know, just like scarcity of resource is a real, real problem in business right now. And looking at sustainability is in a lot of ways tackling resilience and future-proofing your business in so many ways because kind of whether you like it or not these days, it's coming down the pipeline that is going to affect your business, whatever industry that is. So a lot of it's just forward thinking and forward planning and getting your business model, your supply chains, your whole sort of like network and value chain of the company just set up to survive and adapt to a climate change but also you know government regulation that's changing rapidly like we're Mm -hmm. seeing in the uk we've got a national level net zero target now by 2050 and what a lot of my clients are seeing as well is just we're getting they're getting the pushback from that so if they're going for big government tenders you have to have a net zero policy yourself so suddenly people are having to engage with that and then everyone everyone kind of feeds into everyone's value chain at that point so that's how the pressure gets sort of cascaded down and you know ultimately it's all good because all this change is removing carbon yeah and helping mitigate climate change and that's fundamentally what it's all about so sustainability is kind of like i don't know if that actually answers any of your questions but (laughs) it's 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 all over the place in some ways and it's it's a broad complexity and a mixing of different issues like that but fundamentally it's about doing the right thing by the planet and by your people uh, and in a way that makes business sense. That's how I see it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's that's a good definition. And maybe we should pick up on a few like, good examples of of companies working in that way. And I guess there's one obvious one that stands out for me in the kind of outdoor space, and that's Patagonia. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Patagonia, rightly so, are always one of the first to be brought up in this conversation, and they're a great example about how it's not just about making something out of another product that's slightly less emitting when it comes to carbon or uses less water in its production. You know, they're doing things like sewing the president, if you, you know, that kind of thing. It's yeah, you know, they really are putting their putting their money where their mouth is. And they are a great example. There are lots, to be fair. I mean, someone like Unilever as well, like they were always they, they do a lot of good. IKEA, another household name. Okay. Doing a huge a huge amount of work. So basically they're they're sort of stores now which is massive solar factories so they're actually like net positive grid 
base now. So they are actually feeding more electricity into the grid than they use in a lot of cases. So uh-huh. just an example of like, well, of course, not only does that look good from a sort of buyer's perspective, but it's also a fantastic business model because they're not paying for any electricity for their massive shops. So it's, you know, it's one of those examples where I show just a really clear example of how sustainability can help and make a business sense in that way. But I mean, the bike industry is an interesting one when it comes to this space because it is surprisingly far behind. Okay. And it's something that, you know, I've noticed I, 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 as an avid biker myself, like it's just, you keep tabs on this guys and there's some really good work being done in the industry for sure. But as a whole, there's almost this sort of slight reliance on the bike itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, okay, well, yeah, bikes are great. They are a very green mechanism for transport. They solve, you know, if you deploy them on a large enough scale, like in a city, for example, you solve a lot of inner city issues, you know, air pollution, space management, safety, all this kind of stuff. And a lot of companies kind of think, well, we make bikes, therefore we're good. Yeah. But they don't add this layer of introspection when they look at their own practices. And it's okay, so how do we make them? How do we ship them? How do we repair them? How do we create them in a way that can be swapped out and modularity and like all these, all these sort of like the circular economy based issues like that it's just really lacking in the industry and it's difficult because you you know ultimately that it's competitive like you've got shram you've got shimano those guys are probably unfortunately never going to get together and just say you know what let's just make one thing that fits Mm -hmm. you know no matter how much we ask them to it's just it's it's capitalism it has to there's a sort of there has there is a competitive element which is understandable but there's more that can be done you know like let's settle on like a through axle for example, you know, surely there's a way we can just say that this one is okay yeah. and therefore we can just make spares for this and we can optimize that from a production perspective and and take it from there. But yeah, it's 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 a difficult one to sort of point to the household names doing the really, really good stuff. You know, there's a lot of good examples about the smaller companies doing quite innovative stuff. And I think where the industry is going and how it can improve a lot is sort of this localism aspect of things and like supporting your local bike shop making sure that you're sourcing products from as short as distance as possible so you're avoiding the emissions from shipping that kind of thing and you know you can't get away from the fact in a lot of cases that the bits that we're buying come from Japan or come mm-hmm. from America or Taiwan, obviously, you know, massive sort of industry powerhouses that they are. But if there's enough pressure put on these companies, there's still ways of changing it. So, okay, let's ship it all by sea for a start. Like air freight should not be a part of this equation. Yeah, it takes a little bit longer, but do you really need to get that part now or can you wait a couple of months? Like, Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's a lot of, things about the bike industry that i guess go in the face of running in a more sustainable way one of them is the i guess the almost expectation of yearly iterations of products and bikes and i think maybe there is starting to be a bit of a shift away from that certainly for some brands where they're not updating things on a yearly basis and and maybe covid has pushed that because they've literally not been able to they've not been able to get stock but that's something we kind of have to detach from i guess at some point right we don't need a new bike every year no it's 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 a great point and i mean no you absolutely don't of course you don't like i mean i can understand like like downhill race 
the setup there where you're trying to scrape every like millisecond out of a component and tires being refined all this you know every mid-season etc etc that's fine but all of us we're not we're not that like even the guys who thrashed me down the hill at the enduro series this weekend they take it super seriously but they don't need to get that new bike every year i mean if you smash it fine but getting a new component set or getting a new shock just for the sake of it every year is is kind of mad when you think about it yeah and then we've got the issue with standardization right you, you kind mm. of touched on that with three axles but it, every time i kind of do get a new bike i seem to need a different tool to fit the bottom bracket or yeah you know there's always something that's that doesn't fit with the way it used to be which you know there's everyone wants progress but we need to get to some point of standardization like how do you balance that the progression of the sport and the technology alongside doing it in a more sustainable way that's the the tricky thing right no it definitely is i mean i think i think a big part of that is that kind of standardization and modularity bit you know it's like there's there's a huge amount of innovation when you confine space so why you know this is probably going to be quite an unpopular view with a lot of guys but like why not put some guardrails around the downhill series or the enduro series and say okay well you can you know we've got x amount of products for this season and maybe next season so you can pick and choose within all of these and then you're still racing so it's still a reflection on how good the rider is it's still plenty of room to like build up a spec that suits the suits the rider suits the run you can still tweak things obviously but do you really need to be able to choose from, yeah, like 15 bottom bracket types or, mm-hmm. you know, different, it just seems like we've taken this, this product catalog of our sport to such a degree now. And I don't, I think a bit of contraction within that actually would kind of make the the racing a bit more interesting anyway. Yeah. You know, it's like, let's see how good guys are when they've got limited amount of stuff or, even if there's a sort of, I mean, I, I don't think we'll ever get to the stage where they're riding just normal, like bikes you could buy off a shelf kind of thing, but it's an interesting concept. You know, if if these guys are that good. They're still going to be like sending amazing times down. It's not going to be compromising the entertainment aspect of things. Like, you know, if we're watching this on Red Bull or whatever, we're not going to be able to tell if they're five seconds slower because they're riding a production bike versus a custom bike. Yeah. yeah. So the, you know, the entertainment value is still there. The, the interest is there. And I just think they're, you know, it, it's there, it's there to be thought about. It's there to be taken. the chances there to be taken if people wanted to, mm-hmm. but there is this slight inherent need for the new thing. Yeah. And obviously up until recently, it arguably still, it's in the company's interest because they sell more, you know, if they can say this is, you know, let's, you know, let's go from an 11 speed rear cassette to a 12 speed rear cassette. Yay. Great. Okay. It's slightly easier to do that hard bit, but is it needed in the true sense of the word? Probably not. Yeah. And it, I guess it is a sport where a lot of us look to the racing for kind of inspiration and guidance. And a lot of trends come from that. Are there parallels to other sports and other industries where there's this is being dealt with in a better way? Like, are there other sports where they're putting some level of control and restriction around things so that they're not completely, you know, able to do everything they want? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a it's a great question. I think so. Like something like F one 
I think is an interesting example because that's, they put lots of guardrails in place like we discussed. So, you know, that's things like, you know, aerodynamic limitations, a lot of safety measures, of course, none of that is done in the name of sustainability though, mm-hmm. or environmental safety. It's more, you know, obviously rider protect driver protection is, is huge and should be. Um, but then there's also just things, I mean, they, they clearly use limitations to make the races more interesting and say, right. So, you know, how's Mercedes going to deal with this particular problem this year? So I think that model will actually translate really interestingly to the racing side of our sport and great. So, you know, this year we, you know, you have to be on a mullet or this year you have to be riding 29er wheels. So cool. Okay. That's not my ideal. So how do I get around that? How do I innovate around that using this group of products that are sanctioned, that are allowed? And so it adds this level, like, you know, it brings the mechanic back into the sport in a wicked way. You know, it's like sudden, I mean, they obviously are a huge part of the deal as it is anyway. But just imagine when you're like, you know, you get a brief, I don't know, the beginning of the season. And then you suddenly have to like rapid prototype this stuff and work it out from race to race to race. I don't know. I haven't thought this through in a kind of workable way yet, but there's got to be ways where, you know, a little bit of complexity is a good thing. Yeah. And I think certainly in, uh, in mountain biking, the, the racing is setting an example more so than in things like Formula One. People aren't watching Formula One then going out and making drastic purchasing decisions off the back of it but it's certainly we're a lot more connected in what we choose to buy and ride to that level of racing so mm. i think i think it can have some some real positives there and hopefully without constraining the competitive element of the racing absolutely and you know great example of that recently obviously nico Mullally. uh-huh you know look at what he's doing with his own bike setup and everything like, i think that's the perfect example about how you can shift mindsets like you know up until recently that would have been thought of as absolute craziness you know him going up against the intense guys the specialized guys that kind of thing it's like no he's just got he's just got a really sound build he's a guy who's ridden bikes enough to know exactly what he wants he can do small batches of bikes made locally i mean i'm sure if you looked at like the emissions factors between his bikes versus the thousands that travel within the specialized bus kind of thing I mean, it's fundamentally a different way of racing. And personally, I love it. I think it's like a really romanticized version of it. It's that kind of, that privateer, but with a bit more resources to the point where I'm making my own stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that idea. I'd love everyone if they had to design their own bike, if they were going to ride it, that'd be amazing. Yeah, definitely. And there's other examples, I guess. So Johan Bruelli's doing a similar thing where he's put together a package where I, I think pretty much the vast majority of the componentry is coming out of North America. Not all of it. It's pretty hard to do, but a good amount of it, right? No, absolutely. And there's, it's, it's, it, it's interesting you brought up COVID before because it's, in some ways COVID's kind of shown the weaknesses, you know, it's exposed a few of the cracks in not only obviously like mountain biking, but like globally the supply chain issues and resource scarcity. And people are finally realizing, wow, okay, so what happens when, like if climate change gets really, really bad, then this is going to get so much worse. And the concept of being able to have regular shipping lanes or regular flight paths or just a delivery schedule, it just won't exist. Mm -hmm. So people are beginning to realize actually to make a more resilient system, the closer I can get this to me, the more likely I am to get it. 
So if that's a case of, okay, so the guy down the road is making my bike, all I have to do is go down the road, not wait six months for a container kind of thing. And I, 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 th- I think the, the industry is at a turning point for sure. Like a lot of industries are and mountain biking and cycling more generally definitely is. And people are desperate to try and engage with it, but it is, it's just trying to work out the models that work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, guys like Nico would just get on and do it. And, you know, I, I hope he gets some good results. I really do because I'd love to see it as like a proof of concept and, you know, hats off to him. Yeah, for sure. And do you think, uh, by going down that route, it's restricts choice. Like at the minute, if you want to get stuff locally, certainly in the UK, you're very, very limited in choice, a bit more in North America, I guess. And, and there's some other areas in Europe where you could do a pretty good job of putting together a bike from, from within your country, but it's, mm-hmm. it's not easy and the choice is limited. Do you see, how do you see that playing out? Like if everyone drives towards sustainability, will we see more smaller companies locally providing what you need? Or do, what do you think you'll see bigger brands creating hubs, manufacturing hubs within multiple areas? Like where, yeah, how does it move forward? I guess. Sure. I, th- I think you've, you've sort of, you've answered it there actually It's both of those. Okay. So I think that's exactly what will happen. So, you know, giant, for example, obviously like produce like half the world bikes, they will suddenly realize that they only, they can only ship within X amount of distance. So they will start decentralizing things mm-hmm. and that will be one model where the bigger guys come down. But more interestingly, from my perspective, I think that they're going to create a massive gap for the smaller brands to move up into. And it is the local producers. It's the local bike builders. It's the guys who partner with a really cool local bike shop and know the trails really well, who are going to start designing bikes that work in your area perfectly. Like that, that's my kind of like mountain bike in utopia is like, there's a, there's one centralized sort of local, really nice shop where everyone's cool. There's a guy who builds bikes just for that. You can speak to him directly. You can buy him a beer as he's working on it. Like, I don't know. There's this, it is that. But the problem with that, of course, is that probably is going to cost more, at least for the, in the short term. So it's hard to, to do that balancing act in that respect because, you know, you never want to deny someone the ability to ride a bike. But when's all, when all said and done, something's going to have to give something will change and mm-hmm. you know i'm looking again thinking of this enduro i did at the weekend you know, half the guys there were in 60 grand vw transporter vans that were decked out specifically for this they'd driven there to do it and yeah it was an amazing event but surely there's there are ways of like improving aspects of how we sort of engage with our sport and what we do around the periphery of it and how do we build those local communities are you know are are those guys sort of sharing lifts with buddies to get there or you know the the two guys who live next door to each other both driving their vw van kind of thing so i don't know it's 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 going to take time it's going to be a gradual thing but there's so many opportunities for sort of the bike industry and you know that that local example of like you know the sort of smaller industries and the smaller builders ultimately with you know in our sense is is great because i think it is that local community aspect of things that already start growing and you know everyone loves like you know the local knowing the local trails it's knowing that who the local grom is who's really good i just think that if we if we embrace that and embrace that sort of localism there's a lot that can come out of it 
and it's yeah that there is a finite point for that of course like we're not going to be mining the metal yeah. in you know in our local patch kind of thing unfortunately that kind of thing or not you know nor should we but but then again as we move to an era of like 3d printing and that sort of technology as that catches up why not like who knows that like we're not going to be building bikes in the same way as we are now in 15 years yeah like it's just it's not going to work we're going to have better materials more quickly processed and there's every chance that people are going to have their own sort of 3d printers building their own stuff in their garages by that point and you know that's going to take again a bit of a while to get in but it's it's getting that way yeah and i guess it's, this isn't about certainly not in the short term anyway this isn't about being perfect is it it's about being better exactly like when it's it's very very hard to not create any carbon emissions but it's oh, yeah. possible it's possible in numerous ways to make less progress not perfection yeah is always how to think about sustainability like there's no point in hassling companies for emitting carbon because everything in some way emits carbon mm -hmm. you know it, it, it's impossible to be perfect in this space but as you just sort of alluded to it's it's about the attitude behind it it's about wanting to be better it's about trying to identify where the gaps are for that improvement and establishing the ambition is you know what how far do you want to take this do you want to be patagonia level or do you just want to do the minimum that you need to to fit in with your competitors mm -hmm. and you know that's the difference and it's one of the nice things about my job is i get to see that range of clients you know some guys are super passionate about it really not not wanting to sort of even in think about the business benefits of it just purely for the the altruistic world saving element to things yeah and the nice thing is, is we get to then say yeah but it's also really good for your business you know um but then there are guys who are a bit more compliance based should we say you know they just they need to they want to do the bare minimum and, and so they can carry on but i mean the good thing is the way things are going that base level of compliance is raising all the time you know i mentioned that sort of net zero target earlier as well so that's you know at, at some point relatively soon in the uk that's just going to be a standard yeah. that's not going to be a nice to have that's just going to be you either have that or you don't function as a business anymore no. because you've lost every tender for the last five years and that's how it's all going to work you know it is going to be just like gradual bar raising every single time and hopefully we can do it quick enough yeah yeah so the bike industry's got some catching up to do by the sounds mm. of it are there some some examples of things starting to move in the right direction around the bike industry yeah absolutely i mean trek for example obviously we they put out their they did the first sustainability report within the industry like anything sort of like of their scale and their in their level of depth so they deserve some serious kudos for that like that they they were very open about it surprisingly in fact like the way they outlined sort of the, the carbon you know the, the carbon equivalent for each bike and each model was great yeah. you know you can really apply that and you know one of the interesting things that came out of that of course was the difference between aluminium bikes and carbon bikes and that's a that's brave decision you know that's that's basically saying to someone here's a good reason not to buy our fancy carbon bike yeah but they're still willing to do this and so you know hats off to them but then there's 
on sort of the other end of the scale when it comes to sort of bike manufacturing you've got guys like Kotick mm-hmm. you know the way that they're offering to build a bike out of you know your original parts if you buy one of their frames so it's not just about disclosure or measuring your impact it's about the actions that you're taking as well and the, again that's a that's a great example of sort of just it's a small tweak and it's an innovative tweak but it's a really nice step towards a more sustainable way of thinking about this because you shouldn't have to buy a whole new bike every time just because like you get a crack or you want a new bike this year or you, you know you deserve one whatever it's like cool well i've still got 90 percent of a bike that's amazing and i just want to change the frame because i'm moving from this to this so the more that companies enable that type of thing the, the better it is and you know it's not just the bike manufacturers like we've i've been working with um, bike park wales recently okay and they you know they're, they're really really passionately into this and doing the right things and we're sort of working with them really to a just establish what their sort of emissions profile looks at so where they're you know what what is it like to run a bike park and where are the hot spots for for this type of thing but the, you know martin the guy there's great and his he's got a really great team there and they're you know they're they're very into it and they're really trying to identify what can we improve how can we measure things that just are beyond the mountain biking element things like how do you know talking about food sourcing locally sourced materials for building the tracks um, you know everything really it's, it's a complex mechanism a bike park and there's lots of moving parts and it's just trying to work out which bits to tackle first and it's materiality is a real buzzword in consulting because what you want to do is focus your energy and your budget mostly on making the biggest difference possible yeah so what you want to do is identify what are your biggest areas of emissions or the biggest levers for change that you can pull and with that, you can then start, you know, really making the, the best change for your buck kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's lots of, there, there is great stuff happening, but there's also just a, on the other end of the scale, there's a bit of a void at the top. You know, it's like, what, what's Specialized doing, frankly? You know, they're, they're not disclosing a lot. They're not uh-huh. doing enough at this stage. For a company of their size, they're not engaging with this enough yet. and they should be so you know we'll watch this space i'm sure they will soon now that trek has sort of thrown the gauntlet down like that always causes a bit of a ripple effect in an industry if a big enough fish in the pond takes that first action you'll see a lot of people following suit afterwards which is great and again another reason to sort of kudos to trek but it just makes it harder to not act yeah because suddenly you're you're not the norm you're the bad guy or at least the, the the less of two companies potentially. Yeah, interesting. And yeah, you mentioned the Trek report. Mm. I'll have to try and find a link for that to put in the show mm. notes so people can can have a read of it if they want because it was a really interesting piece of work. And that that highlighted the you know the magnitude difference in carbon emissions to make a carbon bike versus an aluminium bike. Um, it's quite a stark contrast. And e-bikes, of course. Well, yeah. So I was just oh. going to ask, like, what other things are there within the mountain bike world that are particularly kind of heavy impact and e-bikes i guess and the batteries are are one of those yeah i mean e-bikes are pretty pretty shocking when it comes to just an emissions perspective but it's it's not even just the emissions you know it's like you know it's that sort of dirty secret in our pockets it's the it's the mobile phones these days you know there's a lot of rare earth metals and Mm -hmm. 
they tend not to come from the world's nicest places in the most you know ethical of ways in okay. a lot of cases so it's the same thing with you know big batteries and that if you it's one thing making a bike out of metal and shipping it around the world it then adds another layer of emissions and complexity if you try and make it out of something fancy like mm-hmm. carbon it then adds a whole other level if you strap a nickel card cadmium battery onto it and a motor so it's just this extra levels of emissions of design of everything else that goes with it and and again but at the same time the flip side of that is they will be the first to go when it comes to resource scarcity because you won't be able to get the parts you know the simpler the design the more likely it is in the future you're going to be able to make it more easily Mm -hmm. because things are going to be at a premium and cost is going to go up exponentially so you know right now e-bikes are pretty terrifyingly expensive in a lot of cases and that's good because they should be because they use a lot more stuff. But that's only, that gap between a fancy e-bike and a, and the aluminium version is only going to grow and grow and grow. Yeah, but then e-bikes, like I mean, there's positives of e-bikes, right? I guess around if you're riding up a hill on an e-bike rather than using an uplift, yeah. then there's less emissions there. And also from a from a greater sort of not for mountain biking as such, but from a transport perspective, they offer some some positives. Comparing- totally you know comparing a car to an e-bike i guess no no absolutely like you, if you treat it as a mode of transport rather than you know mountain biking per se yeah it it's it's you're comparing it to different things and yeah of course if you compare an e-bike to a car it's a no-brainer mm-hmm. and it's all part of the whole move to electrification and once you have that you can then start using renewable energy sources more effectively so you know like again in the uk there's this, in the last few years there's been this huge greenification of the grid so you know we have a huge amount of solar and and most mostly wind power now providing the majority of energy for the grid now which is great and it's one of the it's one of those sort of classic examples that's been banded around over the years it's like if you look at a essentially like an ev you know electric an electric car and if you look at a one-off car versus say like you know an old diesel audi or something like for like, there's probably more emissions in the EV yeah. right now because of the battery, because of the rare earth metals, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, is if you're not, that, that's if you look at the car and it's in isolation. What you need to look is the system that's providing it for it. So that's obviously with a car, you're talking about gas and petrol and all this kind of stuff. And obviously all the horror show that comes along with extracting that and the pipelines and supply and demand and all that. But if you move to the, if you're pursuing a complete electrification of a system, that can ultimately be a much, much cleaner source. So that's why something like an e-bike and an electric vehicle is always going to be better than the diesel version, even if individually they sort of take a little bit of a bigger chunk, but it's the system as a whole which can then be optimized. So it's, yeah, it's complex. And don't get me wrong, I, I would not want to be the guy trying to put those numbers to everything <laughs> and like do that study. But yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult because you're right. You don't, want to, you don't want to discount your bikes, and I'm not trying to do that. But if you compare them directly to other bikes, it's, you have to, ref, you have to yeah. accept they are you know, more emitting in that sense. But they do play a wider role in society as well. And, yeah, it's not only the sport in terms of replacing uplift, but it's also getting more people on bikes. You know, it's like older guys, like commuters now. Like the amount of electric Bromptons I see going around central London is great. 
Really? Because it made yeah, it's more people not getting not getting a not getting a cab and yeah. it's just you know getting off the train earlier and not not needing the tube and all these kind of like great benefits that come around with having a more cycling focused city and this can you know this can be represented in just about any city in the world that's inevitably going to be a good thing so if, yeah. if you know if battery powered bikes fuel that progress and that change to that model then brilliant and obviously delivery of course you know things like last mile delivery systems where you're replacing vans with e-bikes now you know the big mm-hmm. courier bikes that's a huge difference like that that's having real benefits especially in london yeah interesting where do you see things going with the whole kind of circularity and recyclability mm-hmm. side of things because there's there's nothing really in place in mountain biking to kind of keep product moving around to try and get things recycled as much as possible. There doesn't seem to be any real schemes there. Do you think it's possible? It's, it, it is possible. It, the, the trick with circularity is actually the, it's the first stage is design. Mm-hmm. You have to design something with circularity in mind so that when it becomes, when it reaches the end of its life, it becomes a resource for another product. Okay. And that's the bit we're really lacking with, with, mountain biking and it's that again it comes down to that standardization like if you can design a a brake lever that has certain component parts that when the lever snaps or gets worn out or something you can take part of that and still reuse it either for another brake lever or for something else that's how that's real circularity in that sense Mm -hmm. because what you're trying to do is not necessarily just break the a you're trying to keep materials in, in use as much as possible but you're also trying to make sure that there isn't really an end of life. It's the beginning of the next life for yeah. a product. And that has to be done right at the start as you're thinking about, okay, so I'm designing a brake lever, but I'm also designing X or I'm designing three brake levers. And so they need to, you know, it, it's a mindset shift more than anything. And once you have that, then the mechanisms for taking stuff back become easier and it's why you're seeing in a lot of industries this move to a service-based model you know like guys like the tool industry you know like the hilti i think the good example so they do they basically don't sell tools anymore they rent you tools Mm -hmm. and that's because it's now more cost effective for them to make a really really high quality of tool that's going to last and survive repairability and that's another thing that you know the the design for our world comes into more is like how easy is it to fix yeah you know internal cable routing is like the bane of most home mechanics lives and um that kind of thing so you've got to design with that in mind but also just if you have a system where you know that you're going to get the product back the emphasis is already there to the the business case is there to make it last as long as possible Mm -hmm. Because it's not a case of okay, I've sold this now, so it's the it's the purchase's problem. So no, no, they're just renting it off me temporarily. So the product's still my problem. Yeah. What I can do though is design it in such a way that a when I get it back, it's either going to be built well enough to last to the next person, or I can take it apart and fix it, or I can then dismantle it and start using this for other stuff that I'm going to build. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So where where do you think are the most impactful places then, and we'll start i guess with what brands could do to improve where are the biggest things they could go after like let's assume we're talking bike companies because they're mm. the you know the biggest part of the industry and i think that that designing for modularity and standardization is a big one you know we've talked about that a lot but that's definitely that 
will trickle into other elements in terms of the the emissions overall like that will allow circularity that will allow it'll allow more effective shipping as well you know because if you have exact standardization of parts you can make packaging more efficient you can do this you can so that will that will have a big impact um the shipping mechanisms as well is obviously a big one that's where a huge amount of the sort of the global footprint for the industry is so again, it's making sure that you have a mixture of like, it's, it's about mode and cons- consolidation. Okay. So mode wise, obviously you want to try and optimize that. So right now I think probably, probably C is the best route in terms of emissions. So it's just, but then you're baking, you have to do that knowing that there's going to be that time lag as yeah. well. You're not flying this, you're shipping it. So it takes a few weeks. Um, and I think once you have, sort of that in place it's making sure that you have a minimum pack level as well which is something that is surprisingly rare so you know you think that these containers all turn up absolutely full to the brim it's not always the case at all okay and that's that's kind of disappointing in a way because a it's just it's inefficient so that's leading to you know relative you know maintained higher prices but also you know from an from an emissions perspective of course it's just wasted space yeah for sure. So that that's the kind of big hitters for the brands then, yeah? I think so. And it's just, I mean, another big one is just disclosure as well. Like actually just talking about your own footprint openly because there has, you know, no one's here to sort of judge really. It's it's about this progress, not, you know, not perfection attitude. And everyone is on a journey with sustainability and that's fine as long as you're heading in the right direction. Yeah. So I would encourage like all bike brands to start disclosing straight away and just be honest and say, yeah, we're not perfect. We know we're not perfect. This is, this is the, but this is our starting point. This is our line in the sand where from here on, we're going to try and just get a little bit better or, or a lot better. I'm not, I'm going to stop them like doing massive improvements if they can, but it's just this idea that if the conversation's out in the open and people can make those decisions, it naturally forces a bit of healthy competition because there is an element of comparison obviously yeah. and if you're known you know patagonia great example like why are they so good part of part of their brand identity is their sustainability effort and what you know so at some point there's going to be a bike brand that really embraces this and goes hell for leather on this route at a scale that is similar in that way and they'll you know that will start reaping the rewards through sales ultimately yeah so it's i just think there's it's about getting the the industry to engage really openly with this like no one's expecting you to be saints in this space like you you build bikes in asia and you sell them around the world that's never going to be a small footprint but let's at least talk about it and disclosure is always the, the first step to this you can't change what you don't know and you know measuring that and talking about it's the first step and it helps us as customers make an informed decision, right? I think for most people, me included, I'm pretty much blind as far as to how good a product is from a stain from a sustainability perspective when I go and buy it. I, I you know, basic understanding that carbon's going to be worse than something made of metal, but beyond that, it's really quite hard to know. So yeah, if brands are more transparent, at least we can make purchasing decisions. If that's how we, you know, if that's how we want to shop, we're able to at least make those decisions from an informed perspective. Yeah, totally. And, it, you know, it, it's one factor for a lot of people. And, you know, for a lot of people, it isn't an important factor. And that's that's their choice. They'd still rather 
you know, buy what they think is the best performing product or the coolest looking product or whatever. And they you know that's everyone's got the right to make that choice. But it would be nice as well if we did have the option to say, okay, yes, this is this is the best performing in terms of carbon emissions as well. Yeah. And what about from a, an individual perspective? What can we do as as riders, people that are passionate about using the outdoors for our leisure and uh, enjoying the trails in the state that they're in? Like, what can we do? I think, you know, an interesting thing I realized the other day is I probably drive more since I've gotten back into mountain biking yeah. than I did when I was road, road biking. Yeah. And that's a really frustrating place to be because, you know, it's the nature of how we, how we use the landscape in mountain biking is a bit different. You know, we drive to a trailhead and we, we go there or a bike park or whatever it is. So I think a big part of our sport is trying to, optimize and improve that Mm -hmm. so making sure that you know you are sharing a lift with a friend wherever possible you are doubling up on the bikes you're not you know you're not there's this sort of competitive you know it's it's what i mentioned about the vw van thing at at the enduro race there's almost a sort of competitive accessory list yeah with 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 our sport and it's like i get it and don't get wrong i would still love one of those vans don't get me wrong (laughs) but uh it's do we need that? No one's going to begrudge you for having it. Like, you know, if you can afford that, that is entirely up to you to use it. But at the same time, if you've got one, like offer your buddy a lift next yeah. time, you know, because that's literally halving, probably, you know, halving the emissions of that, that day. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a big difference. And, you know, it's the usual stuff. Like just don't, don't be a jerk and like litter. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's appalling how, you know, the UK is a very dense, country really like we think we can escape into the wilderness we can't really we're not like the us or canada where they do have this sort of genuine like massive tracks of wilderness so it's especially prevalent over here but you just have to take a little bit of responsibility and try and you know most people are wanting to do better at mm-hmm. this kind of thing so it's just yeah, doing a bit of research finding out what you can i mean you know you, what you just talked about and there's there is a bit of a lack of information on this so the more that gets out and the more that conversation happens and the more choices able are able to be made on that the the better Mm -hmm. but you know there is stuff out there so people can always start digging around and and getting involved but i think you know those are those are the big ones it's like you know don't you don't don't necessarily buy a new bike every year probably an obvious one as well like i don't think a lot of people do I think a lot of people would like to be able to, and obviously some people do, you know, the world needs dentists. So <laughs> it's, it's a difficult one when you, you know, you don't want to progress someone the choice, like I said, but it's, you, is it really going to make you better? Is it going to make your experience of that ride or that day fundamentally different if you've got this year's stump jumper versus last? Mm-hmm. And I don't, think that's the case and that's unfair because you know stump jumper isn't a, a yearly iteration anymore like they have done better with that so don't want to sort of pick on specialize too much for that but it's if you know just think do you, it's, the, it's the classic n plus one for bikes do we need do, you know, if you've got a 29er do you need a mullet do you really need to sort of get that do you need the you know the 120 mil and the 160 mil setup but you know there's so yeah. many different things and it's so tempting because you, you think okay, well, if I get this, I'm going to be faster. Or if I get this, it's going to make that climb slightly easier or I'll be able to beat this guy or whatever. The reality is it's always going to be down to you and your legs. 
and your ability to ride well. And, you know, I, I'm a very, very happy hardtail owner. And one of the reasons I've got a hardtail is because I know that my technique is junk and <laughs> I want to get better at it. And if I bought a really nice squishy, I would, it would, just, it would do all the work for me. You know, I, I want to get my technique better. And I know that putting more emphasis on like having a, not a harder to use bike, but a more, you know, a less forgiving bike in some ways, actually going to help me for that. So I'm fine with that. I'm not suggesting that as a, as a methodology or anything for someone. It certainly hasn't worked for me in making me fast, but it's, it's, it's just think about whether you need something or, or what you're actually buying it for, I guess, is the, is the main thing. Yeah. And I guess get familiar with brands that are more local to you, right? Look at, look at what's around you, where you live, in the country you're in at least you know try and re- refine it down and just discover some of the brands because there are loads of small brands doing good stuff right absolutely no that that's a, it's a really excellent point you know this over here you, you know cotic orange tons of tons of brands that are just they're not sort of shouting enough about the fact that they are these sort of local bands and similarly with local shops as well you know support your local bike shop it's it's tough out there selling this stuff especially in the last few years and they are such a force for good in most cases and they're always nice people they're always doing it for the right reasons and they probably know a lot more about your local trails than you ever will so it's also just a sensible thing to make friends but you know it's also like when when your bike breaks yes you can order it online or whatever and a lot of a lot of people naturally just divert to that you know we live in the sort of the amazon culture these days but it's worth just trying to think can i can I squeeze it in going to the shop? You know, ideally cycling there, obviously. But you know, can you support a different way of purchasing as well when you're not just what you're purchasing, but how? Yeah. And you know, this this is asking a lot of people. I appreciate that. But if you sort of try and just do a little bit of these, or what you know, one of these every now and then, it it definitely adds up. For sure. And it, I guess, all of this can feel kind of quite restrictive and almost a negative thing like, well, I can't have a new this, I can't get a new bike. I've got to, you know, think about all these things, but there are some real benefits, not just kind of in, in kind of keeping the planet healthy, which is very, very important, but there's, there's some benefits to us in this, right. As there are to the businesses. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, sustainability is the force for good for the bike industry. I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that. And there's a number of ways it does that. I mean, first of all, you know, you're, you're much more likely to be able to actually get a bike because, you know, you're going to have more resilient supply chains. You're going to have better local supply of stuff. And, that, you know, that's a massive deal. But, you know, there's that local community aspect that we talked about. It's getting to know sort of local groups and local bikes, you know, bike shops and local clubs and builders and all that kind of thing. Like you, that, that's going to be absolutely built. But it's also things like you know, the actual bike brands themselves and the companies are probably going to be a lot nicer to work at as well uh-huh. because when you're talking about sustainability you're also you're not talking about just it's not just carbon you know, there's a huge social element to all of this as well and like the s in esg is all about social social welfare and it's about you know paying people a living wage making sure that you know the guys who are building our bikes are getting enough money to live on and feed their kids and have a, have a decent life and that kind of thing, uh, which obviously everyone sort of deserves, but it's, it's, it can be a, it's a really 
like any any manufacturing industry in the world, it's it's a problem, especially you know when you look at in some in some countries in Asia where you know we've all seen the sweatshop videos from the nineties and you know yeah. the Nike trainers kind of thing. And luckily, we've the world's moved on a lot since then, but there's still a lot of work to be done in that kind of space. So you know you are supporting just general human rights, and it's even in the states, I know the sort of like labor unions and a minimum living wage is a big deal which not a lot of people get you know relative to where they live so just making sure that you're if you're supporting a local bike company they're able to obviously pay their employees better so that has this sort of a big impact there um but the other thing as well that there are going to be more places to ride fundamentally like obviously there's going to be more urban space freed up like if we have this sort of massive cycling that like we're seeing in paris right now you know the center of paris is is pedestrianized mm-hmm. basically like it's it's for it's for people on bikes and people who walk that's it cars yeah. are not allowed and that's an amazing thing like who doesn't want a city like that if you're into bikes i mean it's so much nicer to get around so much quicker obviously so much healthier just in terms of air quality and then god there are so many studies now about how air quality is affecting things like cognitive cogn- cognitive ability just even like there's been some really interesting studies on like linking air quality to earnings potential yeah. as well. So there's, you know, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we continue to rely on cars basically yeah. in so many ways. And yeah, I, I, I just think there are so many positives and the negatives are, you're right. It's a little bit more constraining. It's more it's probably going to, probably an element of cost in there as well it's hard to quantify but i'd be naive if i thought all of this was going to happen and there wasn't going to be some element of that but i think that's the nature of the world as it is right now there is there are choices we're starting to have to make you know the the south pole is 40 degrees warmer than it should be right now so things are changing like climate the climate is moving in ways that it's not supposed to and we're not if we don't do something relatively soon in a pretty meaningful way, we're just not going to have the option because it's going to get done to us. Yeah. And it's everyone's responsibility, right? None of us can sit back and look at everyone else or look at big brands to deal with it. Like, yeah, big brands can have a big impact, but we've kind of all got to do our bit, right? Yeah, fundamentally. And it's, it's also like the big brands will act if we act and if we force them to act, that's, you know, they are, it's, it's stakeholder capitalism. We're the stakeholders. You know, if we say I am going to only buy comp- buy from companies that perform on this level as far as sustainability goes, then that's going to force those companies to all start operating at that level because they will feel it. They'll you know hit them in the wallets, which is kind of what, the way you want to do it. And it's the people who think, well, I'll just wait for I'll I'll, either, I'll let government make the rules, and then everyone will have to follow it, or We'll let, we'll let the you know the business community sort it out, and then they can dictate. There's always a a mixture between the three elements there. That you know, obviously, government has a big part to play. Obviously, the business sector has a huge amount to play, but so do we. And it's that sort of interaction between those three forces that will eventually sort of spiral up to be able to make better models and better ways of working, and hopefully for us, a more fun, more resilient more localized potentially more interesting mountain bike world yeah for sure 
it's a super interesting topic and it's not one that uh, is easy to cover in in an hour for sure i'm sure we could go into loads of other elements of it in more detail but if people have if this is like piqued people's interest and they want mm. to find out a bit more are there certain resources obviously there's the trek report i'll try and mm. find a link to that is there anything else you'd recommend for people to go and take a look at or um have a look at when I mean, bike park wales like they, they put a few bits on their website uh-huh. they're working on it for sure like just follow them keep keep them going with interest because that's always interesting like if they see you know if they put something up and it's clearly popular then that's a good way to do it i would say just google sustainability and x is always a good way to start mm-hmm. yeah because that, that will start digging out more reports um it'll the brands that are moving on this that sort of the early adopters will start showing up very quickly so you know like the, the stuff that Kotick's doing for example just be mindful when you're making your choices and instead of just buying it because so and so is riding it or it's potentially got this you know this one magic gear set i don't know whatever it is that you're buying your next thing for just you know google, google the product and see and but add sustainability to it and see there because because there isn't a centralized resource for all this unfortunately like we're not we're not a position in our industry where we can just like there isn't a ranking system or this massive hub somewhere so it's going to be down to you to do a bit of digging but that's half the fun of it for me i mean I'm, but i'm definitely a nerd so <laughs> good stuff man well it's been yeah it's been really interesting picking your brains on it a bit and finding out more hopefully it gives people something to think about maybe it gives some of the brands something to think about um yeah we'll leave it there for today maybe there's a part two we'll see what the the feedback's like and see what people's interest levels are but yeah thank you it's definitely got me thinking about stuff and considering how i act within the mountain bike world and the and the wider world um so yeah thanks for your time man it's been really interesting and uh, we'll catch up soon. Definitely. No. Thanks for having me, Chris. And thanks for all the interviews you've been doing too. It's kept me sane for a long time. So appreciate nice it. Cheers, Mike. See you, mate. All right, that's it for this episode with Mike. I hope you've enjoyed listening. A big thank you to We Are One Composites for supporting this episode. As a downtime listener, you can get 15% off all of their awesome rim-only products for the month of March. All you need to do is to use the code WEARRIMS2022. That's WEARRIMS, all one word, all lowercase, followed by the number 2022 at the checkout over on weareonecomposites.com. March is nearly over, so now is the time to make that purchase. Also, a big thanks to Shimano. I've been really impressed with their new gravity-focused flat pedal shoe, the GR9, which features their brand new gravity-optimized Tread sole. They're super comfy, grippy, and have loads of nice design features. The GR9 is available now from your local Shimano dealer, and you can check them out at mtb.shimano.com. There's a few other links that might be useful to you too. Downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe so you don't miss an episode, forward slash shop to support the show by getting yourself some lovely merch, and forward slash EP if you'd like a copy of the first issue of our incredible print project, Downtime EP. As always, spread the word and make sure as many people as possible are listening. That's it for today. Keep your ears peeled for our Lord's post-race show coming up really soon. But until next time, get out and ride. (laughs) 